ಕೃಷಿ ಅನ್ನೋದು ಒಂದು ಕೃಷಿ ಅನ್ನೋದು ಜೀವನ ಕೃಷಿಕರು ಎನ್ನೋದು ಅದರ ಜೀವದ ಬ್ಯಾಕ್ ಬೆನ್ನೆಲುಬು ಸೊ ಜೀವನದ ಬೆನ್ನೆಲುಬೇ ಅನ್ನೇ ನಾವು ಕಳ್ಕೊಂಡ್ರೆ ನಾವು ಹೇಗೆ ಮುಂದುವರಿಯೋದು ಫಾರ್ಮಿಂಗ್ ಇಸ್ ಲೈಫ್ ಫಾರ್ಮರ್ಸ್ ಆರ್ ದ ಬ್ಯಾಕ್ ಬೋನ್ ಆಫ್ ದ ಫಾರ್ಮಿಂಗ್ ಬಟ್ ಇಫ್ ಯು ಇಫ್ ದ ಫಾರ್ಮರ್ಸ್ ಆರ್ ಬೀನ್ ಡಿಸಾರ್ಗನೈಸ್ಡ್ ಆರ್ ಇಫ್ ದ ಫಾರ್ಮರ್ಸ್ ಆರ್ ಬೀನ್ ನಾಟ್ ಏಬಲ್ ಟು ಡು ಫಾರ್ಮಿಂಗ್ ದೆನ್ ದ ಫಾರ್ಮಿಂಗ್ ಓನ್ ಸರ್ವೈವ್ Ashwini Shanikodi, who we'll be hearing from later in the show, when she tells us about the work she's doing to tackle social problems in farming communities in India and of her experience of moving to the UK. We'll also be hearing from Rebecca Lawton of the Landworkers Alliance on her investigations into the productivity of small-scale producers. And we get stuck into no-dig experiments with Charles Dowding, learning about soil biology, and the intriguing results from his latest forking trials. January means the Oxford Real Farming Conference, and this year Farmerama was there in full force. This was the 8th annual Real Farming Conference held at Oxford Town Hall, where over 800 farmers, chefs, makers, scientists and activists came together to share highs and lows encountered on the journey towards an agroecological future. This is a conference where communal silence is the welcome call and singing and stomping are part of the program. Nigel was with us, recorder in hand, and helped us to capture the spirit of the room. Alexandra Sexton. I guess well, my biggest take-out is hope, which is quite nice to start the year. Um, a lot of the stuff I've heard has been really positive about the future of, sort of organic and a lot of other different approaches as well and how the evidence is mounting that the way that a lot of conventional farming is done, it just can't, it can't continue doom and gloom. My name's Emma Olive. I'm from Village Farm. Uh, I run a company called Cliff Veg, uh, so we're doing the market garden at, at Village Farm. My sort of takeaway from here has been a lot of talk about soil science, which is amazing. I'm really, really pleased that it's kind of getting into more of the, what I now consider mainstream farming, because we are organic mainstream. It's amazing to see how many different ways there are to fix the soil, and nice to see lots of people doing them. My name is Howell Lewis. I'm, I'm a, a beef farmer and forester in West Yorkshire. Um, and my biggest takeaway from the conference is um, uh, um, being very inspired by other farmers telling their stories of how they're making their farms work in a sustainable and viable way. Hi, I'm Rebecca, um, a.k.a. The Wild Shepherd from Village Farm. It's my first year at Oxford. I've really enjoyed it. There needs to be more talks about sheep. Yeah, I agree. Um, but it's so lovely to... meet the sustainable community I've really loved how many no plow and soil carbon Yay. themes there are running through I'm Peter Kindersley right. and I um, we run the Sheep Drove Trust and it's just wonderful to see us now uh, twice as big as the um, as the old farming conference down the road. That's really impressive. It really is amazing. I think, in fact, we're probably more than twice as big. 
it's an amazing buzz here for anybody who comes and I really do encourage people to come because it really is looking into the future and what we can do to really help um, our farming system uh, fit in with nature and yep. supply really good quality food. Peter Langren, I'm a conventional arable farmer in Lincolnshire. The really good thing with this uh, event is the energy and enthusiasm for farming. Yep. And, and when, you, when you meet Lincolnshire farmers, they're very down, or oh, they've only got 2,000 acres, they've only got one quad track. And you come here and you meet young people who are desperate to get into farming. I was talking to a young couple last night who were milking seven goats. They've just got their first cow. They're living in a converted bus and they're desperate to get into farming. And that level of energy and enthusiasm is what will take farming forward. Well, obviously the big, big debate this year is Brexit. Yep. And, and uh, uh, that is one of the big things that's being discussed a lot here. Um, the other is, of course, the nutritional differences between organic and, and the conventional food. And yeah. there's no doubt that the research is really coming home to say that organic is better. Abby's not here today in person. She's back on her family's farm in Chile. Nevertheless, here she is with some thoughts from the conference she sent over. It's a very precarious and sad time here in Chile right now. I'm stuck inside as the smoke is too thick to go outside. There are over 100 fires burning as we speak and only a few of them are under control. The fire is literally less than a kilometre away right now and all I can see is smoke pouring over the hill where we live. It's been like this for over seven days now and more fires are started each day in new locations. It's chaos and camaraderie on the ground as people are coming to help but the volunteer firemen are speeding around saving one person to the next. No one is even trying to save the forests any longer. We evacuated our farm a few days ago as a new fire was started in the pine forest in front and the flames licked towards us. We're all safe and for now our farm is okay too, although a new fire is passing through as we speak. Living in a deserted, blackened landscape, it becomes ever clearer that we must work together, combining farming, forestry and native lands to keep our earth a beautiful place. The natural world never stops reminding us that working with the land is a very risky business, something I think the non-farming community don't always understand. Vast tracts of pine forest are tinderboxes that the natural world would never have created. Going forward, I hope we learn. It's been hard to do anything other than track fires, prepare breaks, and help others over the last week, so I hope my thoughts have some consistency this month. Back to the wonderful ORFC. The three main things I came away with were that one, storytelling is key. We need to create an alternative narrative to tell a story that offers a different vision than the overarching we need GM to feed the world, which has been paradigm for many years. Secondly, 
the importance of combining modern tools and technology with older farming methods. Joel Salatin calls it new-fashioned farming, where GM and chemical inputs are now old-fashioned. And thirdly, what an opportunity we have right now in the UK to rethink subsidies and farming policy post-Brexit. One of the highlights of us at OOFC in 2016 was Rebecca Lawton, and we were lucky enough to corner her for an interview this time. Rebecca is a long-time organic market gardener in Dorset, as well as campaigns researcher for Landworkers Alliance. She spent the last two years researching the productivity of small-scale farms in the UK. She felt that in order to have the government take her seriously and think about how small-scale farms might offer a very valuable contribution to agriculture, she needed to provide some real data. Anecdotal evidence was not enough, and so the Master of Scale report came into being. So I'm Rebecca Lawton and I am a member of the Landworkers Alliance and I grow vegetables as a tenant farmer on a large organic farm in Dorset. As part of my role in the Landworkers Alliance, I'm a campaigns researcher. I started the A Matter of Scale project, which um, I aimed to find out about how productive small-scale farms are in relation to large-scale farms and to find out generally a bit more about the small-scale farming sector in the UK. And I wanted to do this to actually find out whether claims that small farms are more productive than large farms were actually accurate. Um, there are a lot of claims that are going about both ways. Um, the government sees small farms as being hobby farms or at best niche farms producing luxury value-added foods, whereas a lot of small farmers are saying, well, actually, we can, we can provide significant amounts of food to um, feed the UK population and we can be more productive than larger farms. So I really wanted to find out what the truth is, whether small farms are more productive than large farms or whether they're not. And I managed to get um, about 70 respondents to the online surveys that we conducted, which is actually a very, very small sample when you consider that there are 98,000 farms of 20 hectares and less in the UK. The... The dominant enterprises were vegetable production followed by fruit production and poultry production, but vegetable production was by far in a way the most um, frequent enterprise. And really the only data set which I feel it's um, legitimate to draw many conclusions from is the vegetable data because the others are just too small and um, too... Um, too patchy and too diverse to draw any conclusions from. There were some very, very productive farms, but then there were, there were quite a lot that were below average in the data set. When you looked at the median and compared it to organic farms and then to um, standard organic data for non-organic farms, the medians actually compared quite well both with the standard organic data and with the... Um, the non-organic data, particularly for crops such as broad beans, um, salad and other leafy vegetables, the ones that require a high labour input, which is perhaps not that surprising, but it was, it was good to actually see the figures um, support the fact that small farms that are producing labour-intensive vegetable crops can actually be highly productive. 
I mean, other crops such as potatoes, onions, carrots, um, and even things like squash didn't compare so well. The ones that um, use quite a lot of machinery and you don't need so much hand labour for. Um, but I mean, I w- they were sort of they were about the same rather than a lot less. Or well, potatoes and carrots and onions were actually they were lower. But I think what the results point to is that there's a productivity advantage for small farms producing certain categories of produce. And as we're coming into an era where potentially we might um, have higher prices of fresh produce um, if if it's being an import from Europe, I think there's potential to be really increasing domestic productivity of, of fresh produce using small farms at the same time as creating some really good employment for young people on farms. There were various examples when I asked people about what their barriers to productivity were of um, lack of um, infrastructure, mainly things like um, buildings and um, places for storing hay or good fencing, um, which required quite an input of capital at the beginning. And were meaning, the lack of those resources was meaning that businesses weren't as efficient as they could be. So, for example, um, one of the farmers was talking about how when they started, they bought their land and they had about £5,000 of capital after they bought their land and £2,000 of that went off went, was spent on putting in a track so for years and years they've had to um, do things like storing their hay under tarpaulins or using electric fencing which although it can be effective sometimes it's not so effective and animals escape and that kind of drains the business because you're running out to cover the hay when there's a storm and stop it getting wet or you might lose the hay because it does get wet and then you're spending out on more forage and um, the animals escape or you're keeping the animals without a, a concrete yard so you're wading around in mud having capital to invest in infrastructure from the start just makes everything so much easier and more efficient and means that um, more can be done for the same effort rather than just draining the effort. What I'm finding interesting in um, thinking about where we go post-Brexit is looking at the the scale of um, farm subsidies that are being paid out each and every year just to keep farms going. Um, I think if if even a fraction of that could be diverted towards capital start-up grants which would then enable small farms to develop and become efficient and then not need any subsidies at all. So I think that if if money that goes into agriculture was being spent on helping develop the infrastructure and the tools and the training, that would actually create a much more resilient farming system. Small, resilient agroecological farms, they're actually minimising their inputs. So, I mean, the biggest cost really is labour for most of these farms Mm -hmm. and although that's a cost in one sense I don't see that as being 
a big problem because that's income and that's creating livelihoods for people who then go and spend it in the local economy. And these farms can be generating generating money that then can be used to pay workers without relying on a lot of subsidies, which I do think is possible, then that would be a really good way forward for agriculture. Well, in looking into how productivity and efficiency are measured in, um, in conventional terms, um, there seems to be a real bias towards looking at um, productivity per unit labour rather than productivity per unit land. And... Um, it's quite hard to find statistics on productivity per unit land now because labour efficiency is just so much the, the measure of how successful a farm is. It would be very interesting to look at the um, increase over the next few years in productivity per unit land, which I think as knowledge grows um, could follow the productivity per unit labour graph. The productivity per unit labour... Um, that implies that um, labour is a bad thing, whereas I think labour is a good thing. And if we're, if we're wanting to employ people, which is often given as a measurement of economic success, then creating jobs on farms is a good thing and creating livelihoods on farms is a good thing, and particularly creating satisfying, diverse, um, socially enjoyable working environments is very valuable. I suppose the one thing that's really come out of this is, for me is that um, there's a real need for um, the small-scale agroecological farming movement to be creating more data, to be keeping better records, because I think that the government, if we're going to change policy to make it more supportive of what we're trying to do, I think we can't expect the government to just see that we're offering environmental benefits and social benefits. They, the government has really got to see convincing figures for how economically viable small farms can be and also how productive small farms can be. The argument that's always used um, against particularly organic farming but also small-scale farming is, well, we need to feed the world and we've got to... Um, produce enough food to feed the world now that can be unpicked in many ways I mean you can criticize that because you can say well a lot of food is wasted but ultimately I think we've got to be able to show that small farms can provide um, significant amounts of food um, and maybe even more food if the right um, training and the right security of land tenure and infrastructure is available. So I think it's essential that we're producing enough data. And for that, I think that we need to be creating um, comparable forms of data collection and um, also really easy-to-use record-keeping methods for, for all farmers to be using, because farmers are busy people and it's it's hard to encourage people to keep data and a lot of people have gone into farming because they're not so interested in figures and record keeping and economics they want to get out there and be working on the land but making it easy and appealing and offering incentives is really important At the conference, Abby also caught up with Charles Dowding, who runs a commercial market garden in Somerset. 
Since the 80s, he's been growing many different vegetables organically and without disturbing or digging the soil at all. He's also a great experimenter, and he's been doing comparison trials for many years. Charles is the no-dig market garden expert, and he told us about some of his latest trials and what he thinks is really going on down there in the soil. I'm um, Charles Dowding from Somerset, Southwest UK, and I'm a market gardener, vegetable grower primarily, and always organic. And in fact, in the 1980s, that was the starring role part, if you like, of my growth, because people were fascinated. Uh, gardening groups, for example, who I'd go and give talks to, you mean you can really grow vegetables organically? You don't need pesticide or fertiliser? That was the common response. So I was a farmer's son, young man at that time, in 1982, it was a very chemical world. Um, fertilizer and um, insecticides were predominant. They were bringing in the warble fly spray, for example. In fact, my brother got poisoned by organophosphates in the 80s. It was just everywhere, and I was seen as very odd for being organic. And now, organic is seen as at least possible mm -hmm. by most people, I think. It's more a question of whether they want to do it. And, but in the 1980s, I was also no dig. The, the interest in soil is quite a recent thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been a member of the Soil Association since 1981. Even they only recently started talking about soil. Uh, but it's only recently that soil has become a topic of interest to many people. And that has led to much more interest in no-dig mm -hmm. or no-till. Just to clarify the terms, no-dig is more the British gardening word. And I think in America it's more no-till and farming is no-till. But it's the same thing of not disturbing or disturbing the soil as little as possible. And it's about feeding soil. Initially I started with a rotavator, I have to admit. <laughs> I was, because it was the only tool I had, is rotavating my father's pasture land. I rotavated an acre and a half, and actually then I shaped up beds. I, li I really like raised beds. So with a spade I shaped, took soil out of paths, put it onto beds, and I had my raised beds there. So the question then is, how do you go from that if you're going to do any kind of cultivation without losing your beds? If I'd rotivated again, it would have all gone flat and mm. I'd have lost all that precious time I'd put into making these lovely beds. And so I started looking into whether, you know, I thought, what? do I need to cultivate? You know, it's like, perhaps I don't actually. And I found a book by Ruth Stout, an American gardener, uh, who was using her husband, a farmer, spoiled hay as a mulch. And she found that everything grew fine doing that, so why not just feed the soil with hay? Her reasoning was the cow hadn't eaten the hay, so the goodness is still in there. I just put it straight on the ground, and that's feeding my plants through feeding the soil. And so I actually bought some old hay at first, and I thought, I'll do, try that, and mulch my beds with old hay, um, like she does. And then, the following spring, so many of my plantings were killed, eaten by slugs. Duh! Where she's from, Midwest USA continental dry climate, they don't have slugs. So that, showed, that taught me the dangers of taking methods from one part of the world and bringing them into a different area. So you've got to, to always, if you're taking things off the internet particularly, it's not always said where they're coming from. Uh, so be very careful to make sure it's applicable to your condition. And, and in my work now, I'm using um, compost as the mulch because that does not encourage slugs. So, you know, if you could say I'm doing the same as Ruth Stout. Um, um, she was mulching with hay, I'm mulching with compost. You're feeding soil, all your plants benefit in a very simple way. Uh, you're getting high yields for low input of time, because that's the other brilliant thing about no-dig, less weeds. You know, in growing nowadays, um, costs are, are the killer, if you like. You know, if you, if you don't keep your costs down, you, you will not survive as a grower. 
while I was a farmer really. So if you look at many growing operations, it's one of the main costs is time spent weeding. Weeding is necessary. I'm not anti-weeding, but I just want to keep it to a minimum. So no-till, undisturbed soil. Obviously it doesn't grow weed seeds so much because you're not bringing them up to the surface, but there's one other very important factor which has been discovered by Elaine Ingham in the USA that if you have a high fungal population near the surface of soil, that discourages germination of pioneer weed seeds. Now, this is a really important piece of knowledge, and it th- explains for me something I've always noticed, why my gardens grow so few weeds. And, you know, it's like there's more going on here than just the fact that I'm not bringing out weeds. A, it, for me, it's always felt something like the soil is happy. Why does soil grow weeds in the first place? Weeds are a, often are a response to cultivation, mm-hmm. and it's soil recovering itself. Mm-hmm. And if you then think of the meaning of that word, recover, it does have that other meaning. You know, we need, we need to recover if we've got an injury. And that's how I see it when soil is disturbed, over-disturbed particularly, it's injured and so it recovers with weeds. Um, even if some weeds are there, they're, they're less inclined to germinate. The soil feels happier. That's interesting. That, that ties into you were talking about that you're doing some trials around forking some of the ground and no-dig some of the ground. Can you yeah. explain about that? Absolutely. I'm doing... Two separate trials, actually. Well, more than that. But the, the, the two main ones I'm doing, Dig No Dig, and on, one of, on the, the original Dig No Dig, which is now in its 10th year, and I turn over the soil and incorporate manure in trenches, traditional single digging. And 10 years of results on that trial show that 8 years out of 10, the, the No Dig, less work, actually gives higher yield. Mm-hmm. And then in my new garden, I've also started a separate trial where for the last three years I've got a, a, a bigger strip of ground, 2 metres by 9 metres, where each... Uh, of the six beds within that strip is forked before every single sowing or planting. So we put a garden fork in the ground uh, about every six inches or so, maybe a bit more, um, to its full length, which is 11 inches, and give it a wiggle to loosen the soil, but without inversion. Mm -hmm. So in theory, you'd think less intrusion into soil, but maybe aeration or whatever it's supposed to do, you know, this broad forking idea. And then next to that, similar strip, two metres by nine metres, no dig, so basically no disturbance whatsoever. And the same amount of compost goes on top of each of these strips of ground. So again, it's slightly different to my other dig, no dig, where the dug bed, the soil is being incorporated. So three years results in each of the three years, again, the no dig is ahead in terms of harvest. So we grow the same vegetables um, in each of the strips and I record all the harvest, which, yeah, it takes a bit of time, but it's it's actually a really enjoyable job because it's fascinating. You know, even apart from the fact I've got the trial results side by side, I'm also getting total yield figures, which are getting more and more impressive as well. So that's a, it's a very nice body of evidence to have. The, the results this year were really quite staggering, actually. Okay. 15% increase uh, by doing less. What I think is happening, or, you know, this suggests is happening, the forking is disturbing the fungal threads. And if you think about it, well, that does make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, so that any kind of intrusion into the soil that we do I think particularly with iron tools as well. Um, you know, this goes back to Victor Schauberger's work in Austria 100 years ago where he invented copper tools and discovered that they, you got much higher yields of wheat from using his famous copper plough hmm. than you did from using an iron plough, for example. You know, what's all that about? <laughs> but, you know, I think that there could be an element of that as well. But for me, the big one is soil life. You know, I think that's the thing that we need to both protect and encourage for our businesses to be really successful and profitable and for us to spend less time doing it as well because mm. it does seem that healthy soil with vibrant soil life across this whole spectrum, a diverse soil life, 
is going to give you high yields for less input of time. Feeding the soil on the surface, which is nature's way, you know, naturally all organic matter lands on the surface and then the nature is equipped, it has equipped itself, the soil, with all these organisms that can take this matter in, process it and turn it into plant food. And working with those processes, I think it's very exciting for farmers and growers. Abby, you're talking to Charles Dowding. If you're interested in learning more, Charles runs courses on his farm. And I really think there's so much to learn if you've got the time to spend a day with him down there. He's also got a new garden diary out. So if you want to know a little bit more, take a look at charlesdowding.co.uk. Back to that intriguing and powerful voice from the start of the programme. It belongs to Ashwini Shanikodi, who's recently left her family farm in India to join her partner in the UK. Here she speaks to Dala Eno, the farmer-rama, about her work in community development, the role of women in Indian agriculture, and the calling back to her home. Also, about the power of street play as a tool for civic engagement performances acted out on the streets in local languages in order to describe ideas, concepts and ways of understanding the world to people within local communities. And apologies for the small amount of machine noise in this recording. My name is Ashwini Shanikori. I'm from India. I'm born and brought up in an agricultural farm. I sometimes feel very guilt about the family farm is there. And I'm here. I have to go back. That, is, that feeling is still there. Over the time, I observed that uh, how the farming is, uh, transition is happening. What happened was that when I was growing up, there was this disconnection from the farm. Myself. I myself went through that stage because you've been always told that, okay, let's do, go work in the farm because it's something was imposed rather than came for me when I, when I was a kid. But over the time, when, when I started going for college, that's when I observed that there are other social problems which are not being discussed. Um, we saw that there is alcoholism, there is uh, you know, really, uh, financial problems where there are problems with uh, abuses, different kinds of abuses, and people were not aware about a lot of issues relating to, within agriculture, maybe relating to industrial farming, farm, the traditional farming, and uh, straight play is an approach to convey the message to the people. So what we done was that I asked the uh, college students to come join me, and we trained them in a local language that is Kannada to speak with the local people and to convey what is happening, what is organic farming, what, who are the actors are in it, what happens when you call yourself as an organic farmer? Because many people won't read. How many people will read? I will read only which is required for me. But I feel always that visual media, which is more effective rather than a document, because that's where you express yourself. So there, was, there, there, there is still a connection. If I go back, people will recognize me. It made a lot of changes because it's not only me. Many people are doing street play in India, across India. 
when it comes to if you are introducing any project if you look at social media if you look at internet also you will find incident you will find clips stories about how street plays are being used as a community you are part of that one community if i am taking oxford as a community whole example each and every activity which is happening within oxford becomes part of it so if you tell that okay i have work but uh, in my agricultural land and i am not able to become part of the community then you are actually uh, you are going away from the the reality what is happening within your community yesterday they were talking about there is a lot of education information is available but it is not available it's not available in the mainstream it's available if i am connected to you i may get but see i i was coming and going for last two years to uk but i was not aware about many things i was not connected with a lot of networks because it's been from past one year i'm here um, like majority of my time so i'm able to connect now i know that these things are happening we don't talk about the gender issues much i haven't seen anybody talking about gender issues here in uh, in the conference i see a lot of girls here and they are interested in the topic they are very inter- they have that interest do you say that because is it something you feel when you're back home is gender an issue in farming yeah because a lot of ladies they do a lot of hard work and they are the people who preserve seeds they are the people who transfer traditional knowledge my mom she's a very good vegetable look garden person she knows how to do beekeeping she know how to because i learned from her how to do basic beekeeping i'm still learning the skill mm-hmm. and everybody from surrounding area they come and collect uh, seeds from her vegetable seeds especially because people from uh, small village like from my farm they took and it's there in like in bangalore bangalore is a metropolitan city so people take it there and also they do some vegetable gardening inside the house still it's coming up so the woman is actually like the pillar in indian agriculture would you say is like yeah they are the pillars because yeah. they are the people who go and work in the farm in the land and uh, they save uh, they save the seeds for the next generation definitely they are the very inspiring because it is over here there is a bit of an archetype of okay. the male farmer i think and there's still a lot of gender issues around strength and like what women can and questioning about what women can bring to agriculture and i think that's come with mechanization yes because of the tillers and big tra- uh, tractor but not valuing things like seed saving and the- yeah yeah if you have a family farm in uk or a 20 50 60 acres of land the management of it everything they look after which is not been we don't hear their stories there's no narratives about the contribution of women in the agriculture of uk mm. that is one of the interesting research topic maybe that was dala speaking to ashwini for farmerama and we're now going to go back to abby once more on her family farm with a few points to follow that interview i was so pleased that ashwini brought up the lack of female narratives at the orfc although the crowd in the room was quite well mixed i too never once heard gender brought up 
In the storytelling session, two men spoke, and I didn't hear them speak about a single story that involved a female farmer. I'm ashamed to say that for some reason I felt too scared to get up and say anything about it, like we had much more pressing issues to worry about. But after much reflection, I think biodiversity in the environment must be reflected in the narratives we tell. After all, we are part of this environment. So not only do we need more female narratives, but those of people from different backgrounds, religions, and so on. If the farming community is going to generate a positive environment, we must reflect that in our worldview and the voices we share. ORFC was a huge success this year. I had a great time. And going forward, something we would like to see more of is workshops. For example, people could learn how to tell their story not just hear from someone who has been successful telling their story, and things like that. I really hope things in Chile get back to some order soon and people stop lighting the fires. You can follow what's going on on our Twitter, at VitaCycle. We live in a crazy world. Thank you all for listening to Barma Mama this week, and every week. And thank you to all this week's contributors. Joy, Darla, and Nigel, Lauren, Phil, and Richard at ORFC, and Owen, who recorded the new music we've had on today's show. And of course, thank you to all of our guests. We're very much looking forward to the rest of the year. We'll be back next time with more voices from the smaller-scale farming movement in the UK and beyond.